Berman Liscarry picks up steam in Georgia as the governor endorses the idea, and an interview with Canadian gun rights lawyer Ian Runkle. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can go and buy a membership today if you want to get exclusive access to dozens of pieces of analysis and exclusive news stories that you can't get anywhere else. You'll also get this podcast a day early and have the opportunity to appear on the podcast in a member segment, which, uh, hey, if you're a member already, just email reply to your Sunday newsletter, which is another exclusive thing members get, uh, if you'd like to come on the show and talk a little bit about yourself uh, and how you got interested in firearms and came to be a member of the Reload. Um, But today, we're going to be talking a little bit about our neighbors to the north in Canada and a confiscation effort that's ongoing up there. Some of the uh, effects of it so far, where it's headed, why it's had such little compliance to this point. And for that, I have a guest. He's a lawyer in Canada, deals with gun rights issues. Uh, Ian Runkle. Ian, can you just tell your, tell the audience a little bit more about yourself for those who might not know you? Oh, well, I, I practice in criminal defense and firearms law. I basically, I got started in firearms a little late. I wasn't, uh, I didn't grow up with them. In fact, my mom was not a big fan of them at all. But when I was in law school, I remembered my dad had taken me plinking. I enjoyed it. And I really needed a hobby that wasn't drinking because that's the sort of leading (laughs) hobby people take up in law school. So I got uh, my firearms license, which is a thing you need up here, and started up. And the first thought I had was there's so many laws up here and I really need to make sure that I don't, you know, hobby myself into jail. So I better learn all these laws and as i started reading them i thought these laws make no sense this i must be i must be dumb i must not be getting this and then later as i read more it was like nope i'm understanding what the laws are it's just the laws are dumb and i understand them (laughs) and that's really when i decided i was like this is too complicated for the average person and i really want to uh i want to make sure as few people are getting ensnared by this as possible. So that's what I've been doing ever since is uh, fighting, largely fighting the government on firearm stuff. And uh, yeah, it's my area of interest. And I've currently got a uh, a personal battle going on with the government on the firearm issues out here uh, related to the firearm ban. So that's fun. Yeah. Can can you talk a little bit about the the new ban? Or I guess it's not really new at this point. It's, it's almost two years old. But uh, there was a there was a mass shooting that happened in Canada, right? Terrible, horrific event. And in the wake of that, as is often the case, there's a, a push to ban numerous types of firearms, and not just the sale of them, but also the possession of them. Which, uh, you know, to my mind at least, uh, and I think to anyone being honest is confiscation there may not be a door-to-door enforcement effort coupled with it uh, as you know is commonly uh, imagined in the sort of uh, public ethos but uh, public imagination but um certainly if you can't possess the gun any longer legally then that's that's a confiscation effort um, and so this applied to a number of firearms but mainly to ar-15s um, or similar rifles, something that's obviously controversial and has been for a long time here in the United States, um, but now is effectively going to be illegal to possess in a couple of months here in April. Is that correct? Absolutely. And uh, I mean, they say that it's because of the shooting, but in fact, they moved so fast with a ready to go list that it's pretty clear that they had that ready to go and they were waiting for a shooting. And so. Uh, it wasn't so much driven by that as that they had a, a political aspiration in place ahead of time. And in fact, I'd heard rumors that it was coming. So, uh, and the shooting itself had nothing to do with the AR-15. It was, uh, there was no AR-15 involved. And the guy in question, the police had been receiving reports about this guy for a long time, indicating that he was dangerous and that he was owning firearms illegally. And they did nothing about it. They 
sat on their thumbs and tragedy ensued. And it was a tragedy that was exacerbated by the actions of the police here because they were aware that this guy was driving around pretending to be a police officer and they didn't tell anybody that that's what was going on. I think they were concerned that people would be uh, suspicious of actual police officers if they mentioned that. But this guy was driving around in a uh, police or a car that looked pretty much exactly like a police car. And uh, their only sort of response uh, to alert the public was they put some messages on Twitter which, you know, not everyone's on Twitter following their local police station. So it was just a real disaster. But the response was to ban firearms used by law-abiding citizens here. And given that we have a licensing scheme, it's kind of easy to tell the difference. Can you talk a little bit about what the law was before the ban? Obviously, like here in Virginia or most of the United States, Yeah. Um, now, so obviously, some states in the United States have assault weapons bans that include AR-15s and are really targeted mainly at AR-15s, so it's not legal to sell them. Um, so it's not universal here in the United States, obviously. But in most states, you don't need any sort of special licensing or permitting to simply own a, most firearms, and especially long guns like AR-15 rifles or shotguns. Some some states require licensing to to own handguns um, because they they tend to be more drivers of crime, or at least they're more uh, more often recovered in crimes. But uh, what's it like in Canada before this ban went into place? What, what were the rules in terms of how you could own uh, an AR-15 or a similar uh, rifle? So as a starting point, in order to own any firearm, you need a firearms license, and there's a different sort of set of categories. Uh, there's licensing for non-restricted firearms, which are most long guns, so most of your shotguns, hunting rifles, etc. cetera. Uh, restricted firearms, which are handguns, and previously the AR-15 was listed as a restricted firearm. So that required a higher level of licensing, and it also required that you register all of your firearms with the government. Uh, there had been previously a registry for non-restricted firearms, but the government got rid of that. And then there's a further category of prohibited firearms. Some people had grandfathered licenses for those so they could possess them and still can. Uh, whereas others, you can't get a new license for a prohibited firearm. So it sounds a, it sounds a lot like our, our NFA, the National Firearms Act here in the United States, especially as it pertains to um, machine guns, where you, you can still own them legally or even transfer them. Uh, if they were manufactured and registered before 1986, but after that point, you, you can't any longer. So it's, this also there's some applies to both the like. person and the gun. So you can't uh, bring in any new firearms, but also, like, I can't go and get a fully automatic firearm, but there's lots of people in Canada who own them legally because they're grandfathered. So that's mm, kind of the weird uh, or the different aspect to it there. Yeah, I definitely see some similarities there, but but obviously some significant differences. But I uh, I mainly ask to get an understanding of what the law was in, before this ban. So the, it was already very restrictive in, in terms of being able to own uh, an AR-15 or some of these other guns that got banned. Uh, although not all of them, to my understanding, are, are were on the, the restricted list and not all of them were required to be registered, which is a problem that we'll talk about in a minute here. But uh, Certainly, the level of regulation was already quite high before this ban went into place. Uh, and so now that the ban's in place, can you can you talk about what the consequences are for people who own these firearms? Well, previously, the AR-15 was uh, a restricted firearm, which meant that the only thing you could do with it was essentially take it to and from the range. Uh, you couldn't, if you wanted to go shooting in the woods, for instance, you couldn't legally do that with the AR-15. So the applications of them were quite limited beforehand. It was just target shooting. And now they've, uh, now they've gone ahead and banned it, and they've implemented an amnesty for two years. And the amnesty allows you to do absolutely nothing with it. I've got uh, AR-15 sitting in my gun safe, and I can't do a thing with it. It just has to sit. That's it. So uh, 
you know, there's some other things you can do with it. You can take it to the police for destruction. Uh, but and if you move, you can bring it with you so you don't have to leave it behind at the place you moved out of. But basically, you you all you can do is just hold on to it right now. Uh, this applies as well to a bunch of firearms that the other sort of bunch of firearms that they banned, uh, the Mini 14, anything with a uh, muzzle velocity over 10,000 joules, anything with a uh, bore diameter of 20 millimeters or greater. So, uh, and a lot of these things weren't registered. So a lot of people who own these things may not actually realize that they've been banned. Right. And, and that gets into obviously one of the problems that the government is facing right now, which is uh, one that there's very little compliance, although uh, so. So right now, there's only been a couple hundred of these guns turned in over the last year and six, you know, year and a half, a little over a year and a half. And there's only four months left until the deadline. Uh, which I think a lot of people in the United States, when you, they hear that news, they think, well, the, well, the Canadian gun owners, they're resisting this law. Uh, they're, they're not going to comply with it, uh, which is a common theme down here in the United States when you talk to uh, gun rights activists about, um, you know, different gun regulations, especially something like confiscation, uh, is the attitude of noncompliance. But in Canada, uh, the situation is a little more complicated than that, I, I would say. Uh, and hopefully you can inform us a little bit, uh, perhaps even let us know why you yourself haven't turned in your gun yet. But the one of the big reasons here is that there's the, the way that this is set up right now, if you there's supposed to be a buyback where the government is going to offer owners some amount of money, some undetermined amount of money for these guns. Uh, but that hasn't actually gone into effect yet. There haven't they haven't even announced when it will go into effect. And the problem is, if you turn your gun in before that happens, you get paid nothing for it. Right. So they've sort of created uh, incentives not to turn the guns in, even though there's only four months left before uh, it becomes illegal to possess them. And I'd say sort of say that there isn't an issue with compliance right now, because right now the law doesn't require you to do anything. Um, Somebody who's keeping an AR-15 is not actually breaking the law right now. It's mm -hmm. and the government has actually been saying, hold on to your gun. Don't you know, because we're coming with this buyback scheme. Of course, they haven't actually. There's been sort of the babyest of steps towards it and the likelihood that they actually have it lined up and ready to go by the, the deadline here is pretty poor. But there is no reason to turn it in right now because uh, they're promising that there'll be money in this buyback scheme later. And if you turn it in right now, you get nothing. So there's not a whole lot of people keen on turning these in. I suspect that the small number they've got has been people who, you know, maybe somebody died and their family turned it in or, you know, something like that. It's going to be an unusual scenario. So I don't think that we're really... Uh, Essentially, this is what the government planned is that nobody turns it in until they get a buyback program lined up and they haven't been doing that. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens because they're rapidly running out of time and it may end up coming if they decide that they're not doing a buyback program, but they're not extending the amnesty. It may actually come down to them starting to kick in doors because there's going to be a lot of people really upset about, uh, well, I'm not turning it in until I get my money. And they may actually start sending the police to various houses to kick in the door and say, we want the gun, please. And, right. uh, well, uh, I mean, yeah, there's no financial incentive to turn them in right now, but there is still the, the sort of looming criminal threat, uh, of, of not turning them in. Uh, uh, perhaps everyone is waiting until April deadline to see what they're going to do with the buyback. And, I would uh, the responsible thing seems fairly obvious that the government would extend the deadline. I mean, obviously, uh, a lot of people would say the responsible thing is not to have a program like this in the first place. But uh, if you're going to do something like this, uh, the way that they've gone about it is particularly uh, incompetent, it sounds like. And um, but uh, I mean, there is some, uh, you know, I, I would imagine that if you ha had this sort of uh, jail time punishment and, and large fines, because uh, it's several years in jail if, if you don't turn in the gun by April, right? 
Yeah, and what you may end up seeing is if they don't, if they take no actions, if they just say, hey, um, we haven't decided on a buyback plan, so I guess one isn't happening, but we're not extending an amnesty, you may actually see at the last minute a whole bunch of people rushing to turn these in, as well as a whole bunch of people going, well, I'm still going to wait for the amnesty and we'll just see how it plays out. Uh, that is a legally risky strategy because, of course, how it plays out might be SWAT team kicking down your door, which I don't right. recommend. It's a bad that's a bad life strategy. But uh, sure. The police... Although I, I, I guess here's where the what's going to be interesting for, I think, a lot of American viewers uh, of the show here is in, in the U.S. I mean, the attitude among most gun, well, most gun rights activists, very active people um, at the very least is. Uh, not to comply, not because there's no money, but because you don't uh, agree with the policy in the first place uh, that, that you find that you would actively want to resist turning in your guns because, you know, Americans fear uh, confiscation means uh, tyranny, essentially, and, and that you have less control over uh, your own self-government. Um, is that sort of philosophy shared among Canadian gun owners at all? Like, is that something that's going to be a factor in this? There's certainly some, although one thing that is uh, fairly clear is that the whole point of a registration uh, scheme, a registration system, isn't uh, public safety, because I don't think that our gun registry has solved even a single crime. Uh, when they say, oh, we, we, every time they trot out a crime is like, we solved one with the gun registry. It always turns out that it was solved some other way. Uh, there was one that they trotted out as a big, you know, big, you know, we got one. And they're like, yeah, when we checked this gun, it turned out it was registered to this guy who was the dad of the guy who robbed the bank. But it was also a small town. And this kid robbed a bank with no face mask on and was literally recognized and called by name by the clerk who was like, are you sure you want to do this, Johnny? And so, you know, when they tout this as a registry success, it really wasn't. They already knew who the guy was by the time, you know, by the time they were doing any of these things. So it's not a crime prevention measure. It's a seizure measure. And there's going to be a lot of people thinking, well, if I, you know, play around with compliance, if I don't uh, comply, they're going to know exactly which door to kick in. So I think that's going to uh, affect how many people are thinking, hey, you know what? Uh, maybe not. Uh, that said, there's a lot of guns that are covered that aren't uh, on the on any registry. And I think that the compliance on that one is going to be substantially lower. There's going to be a lot more people thinking, well, they don't know I have it and I don't feel the need to tell them. There's also going to be a lot of people in that category who are not complying, not out of, you know, I'm I'm never going to go along with the government, but just because they don't know. There's going to be tons of people owning these things going, listen, uh, this is my varmint gun. It's, you know, it was my dad's varmint gun before. And what do you mean? Like, the government would never ban my stuff. There's going to be a lot of farmers and so forth who are just thinking, like, my, I'm never affected. A lot of the sort of FUD category, as uh, the gun owner, you know, the gun community will say, and uh, yes. not realizing that they're covered. So there's going to be... Defiance through ignorance, I guess, is the way to put it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and and I think you've seen that in a number of of confiscation efforts, or at least, or even uh, just registration efforts in the past, uh, whether it's in the United States or, or elsewhere. But uh, I guess I, I want to talk just a little bit more about the sort of uh, Canadian gun owner ethos. Uh, do you think that it's closer? to sort of the American ethos, which is obviously the, the United States has a fairly unique uh, founding story where resisting gun confiscation is quite literally baked into uh, our, our actual founding, you know, history, because the Redcoats that were coming that Paul Revere warned about, they were going to Concord in order to seize arms and, and powder uh, storage there. And that led to uh, armed standoff that started the Revolutionary War, Revolutionary War. That was where the shot heard around the world was was fired uh, and that every American learns in elementary school. 
And so there's obviously a very strong uh, um, inclination here in the United States to resist government seizure of firearms uh, on, on a mass scale at the very least. Uh, whereas Canada, uh, some of the other Commonwealth countries, you know, Australia, New Zealand, um, don't have that sort of history of how you came about your independence, right? And and so there there wasn't a you know a violent revolution to to bring you guys into self governance. It was uh, not. It didn't go down that way. And so um, you see countries like Australia and New Zealand pass confiscation. Uh, efforts with relatively little opposition politically, um, and then you you see Canada uh, doing the same thing. Uh, perhaps there was a bit more in the way of political opposition to it, but uh, I wonder as where where do Canadians fall on that scale? Are they more influenced by the American culture or by the sort of uh, Commonwealth culture of uh, where gun confiscation is less? Uh, taboo, I guess. There's really a mix. And I mean, there's different gun cultures within Canada. The gun culture that you find, you know, on a reserve might be different than the gun culture you find amongst people living in downtown Toronto. So there's going to be some people certainly who uh, who are more of the American mindset saying, listen, you know, I'll never give it up. And we'll see how many of those people flinch in the face of, you know, there's going to be some tactical raids. We're going to see that. And, you know, that may uh, change some people's minds because when you see somebody proned out in their front yard with a, you know, ironically, an AR-15 pointed at the back of their head, uh, that tends to be something people want to avoid. But uh, there's certainly talk in that, you know, vein of like, you know, of people saying like, non, don't comply with this. I don't know what the actual numbers are going to end up looking like. And uh, it'll be interesting because uh, some of the people affected by this are, uh, as mentioned, indigenous groups living on reserves because some of these rifles are very popular on reserves. And there's a history there uh, in terms of rebellions and you know other things where sometimes access to firearms was really what kept the you know, the federal government from being as abusive as they wanted. And they wanted to be really abusive, and they were uh, throughout history. But there were points where, you know, so uh, that's going to be a really touchy subject because, you know, if you've got reserves where lots of people have the Mini 30, for example, which is a popular hunting rifle, uh, and if they're going in saying, hey, we want all of these, turn them in, they may find a lot of people going, no, like we, you know, we've got uh, our own, uh, you know, our own sovereignty and we're not disarming ourselves in the face of, you know, face of this. So it'll be interesting to see. And I suspect that that's where you may get more pushback, especially with people going, what do you mean you want to send our people to jail over the hunting rifle they've had for a decade and they haven't done anything? Uh, that's going to make a lot of people really upset and angry. And I think a lot of the people who are supporting these bans haven't actually thought out um, who this is going to affect, because a lot of them tend to be sympathetic to indigenous issues, not realizing that firearm access and firearm rights is one of them. So it's uh, I can't really predict how many people are going to uh, sort of push back in any way. But uh Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, that makes sense. And obviously we see some of the same uh, issues uh, as far as minorities and, and gun control here in the United States. Um, and some of that history is is shared here, too. But uh, you, I think it's interesting. You, 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 so you do expect that there will actually be police raids uh, on people's homes if they don't comply with this measure. Uh, you think that will be a common thing or is this uh, something you expect as like a show an example being made of somebody kind of thing i mean the one of the things is that they just don't have enough police to raid everybody simultaneously if they did i'm sure what they'd love to do is kick down every door of somebody that they don't have a dedicated turn in you know uh eight o'clock day one like as soon as the amnesty expires just every door a boot to it 
Uh, but they don't have the resources for that. They just, so what I suspect they're going to do is send increasingly angry letters along with doing some raids because they, you know, as I said, they can't raid everybody at once, but they can certainly raid somebody every day. And they're probably especially going to sort of target uh, known figures, I suspect, just to make an example. So have they, uh, have they allocated any sort of, um, resources for enforcement of this ban. I mean, it kind of sounds like they uh, aren't doing much of anything on it. They haven't even come up with the the buyback program's basic details yet. I, uh, so, I'm, like, I wonder how how forcefully they're going to actually try to uh, you know put this into place. There's no indication that they've allocated any sort of special resources to it. But I mean, the police always have uh, sort of a door kicker budget, right? They've uh, a lot of if. If you're in a big city, they've probably bought some sort of really expensive, uh, you know, armored personnel carrier, in some cases, former military vehicles and so forth. And they've got guys who are, you know, that's what they do. They're on, you know, the tactical team, and most of those guys don't get enough practice. So they're probably pretty keen on being able to roll out and, you know, hey, we can actually do some practice runs on people who probably aren't too keen on shooting us because they're law-abiding gun owners, they're not meth addicts, and so forth. So it's going to be ugly, though, because most of these people are just kind of like family, you know, family uh, family men, family women. Um, sure. So it's, I mean, it's a really unfortunate aspect, but I think a lot of the people pushing these don't really think of what happens. And... And I say a lot of people don't really think about how enforcement happens. That's not true of everybody. There's certainly some people who are really gleeful over the possibility of uh, gun owners having their doors kicked in and possibly hoping that some of us get shot. I've seen comments like that on Twitter. Like, I hope the RCMP, you know, kicks down all your doors and shoots you guys in the course of seizures. I'm like, okay, that's what we're dealing yeah. with then. Yeah, certainly those people exist. But uh, I guess I'm just... Uh, a little, I just wonder how, how much enforcement there will really be just because of, uh, and obviously, we, uh, you know, we, I don't know that we've seen anything quite like this in Canada before, so it's, it's hard to say exactly, but we have seen, uh, you know, confiscation or mandatory regulation, or sorry, mandatory registration efforts done in the United States and Australia and New Zealand. Um, and uh, at least in the United States, what tends to happen is these possession bans get passed, and then there's no real effort to enforce them. Uh, and so you see almost no compliance with them. For example, in New Jersey, uh, just recently, they passed uh, a new law that banned, that lowered the restriction on how many rounds you could have in a, in a magazine for, you know, an ammunition magazine uh, from 15 to 10. And then they made possession of all the magazines that hold more than 10 rounds illegal. And then they did basically nothing to enforce that rule, and not a single person turned in a magazine to the state police there uh, in the in the preceding years. Uh, that and that law is in effect right now. It's technically illegal to possess uh, any magazine in New Jersey that holds more than ten rounds. And generally, what you see is these get used as sort of tack-on crimes. Uh, now, it may be different uh, in a situation like you're talking about here with the registry in hand, so police can know or at least have a good idea of who has the illegal, uh, you know, weapons, whereas in New Jersey, the magazines weren't registered. Um, and then you saw a similar thing in New York with the SAFE Act in 2013. They, pa they passed a registration requirement that almost nobody complied with, estimates put it at, you know, the single digits, I believe, uh, as far as uh, how many people, what percentage of gun owners who were affected by the SAFE Act actually complied with it. Um, and But, uh, of course, you do have more success in places like New Zealand and Australia. New Zealand, the 2019 buyback after the, the Christchurch uh, massacre, that collected about 56,000 guns, according to news reports. Um, and then in Australia, they had two separate buybacks, uh, mandatory buybacks, uh, confiscation efforts in 2001 and 2003. And those collected a total of about 700,000 firearms. 
However, even even those examples, uh, it's hard to say that they were all that successful because the compliance rate in New Zealand, some have put that at about 30%. So there's still 70% of the guns affected that weren't turned in or confiscated. And then you had um, in Australia, the compliance rate was estimated to be uh, as low as 20%. And they've already re uh, basically replaced all the guns that were uh, removed. So they're, they have the same number of guns today as they did uh, during the confiscation or before the confiscation happened. So, uh, you know, it's, it'll be interesting to see, I think, what how the government chooses to try and enforce this and how successful they actually are at it, given even the places that get touted as big successes in the Western world for gun confiscation didn't actually do that well. Yeah, and it's, uh, I suspect we're gonna see a lot of that with respect to the, the non-registered firearms. There's going to be a lot of people who uh, either just don't realize it or don't feel inclined to, and it's, I think it, the, the optics of what they'd have to do in order to seize all of these would include things like, you know, going door to door in reserves, kicking down right. doors or insisting on searching. Uh, that's unlikely to be popular. And so what's probably going to end up happening is they're going to find these things over time as, you know, if they end up searching somebody's house for other reasons. There's a complaint of domestic yeah. violence there or something. So they go in and they seize all the firearms because of that allegation. And then they go, oh, by the way, uh, eight years ago, we banned this. And so you can't have it. And we're going to add on a charge now. And a fair right. number. Of that sounds people, much more likely to me. Yeah. yeah. And a fair number of those people are going to be, what do you mean this one was banned? Like, this mm -hmm. is my hunting gun. <laughs> and it's going to be. It's going to have this really long tail of enforcement. So a lot mm -hmm. of people sort of think it's going to be that, you know, the amnesty expires and a whole lot of action happens. And there will certainly be some action happening once that uh, expires. But a lot of the enforcement is going to be years later. And, you know, it'll be uh, indigenous guy out hunting, gets stopped by Fish and Wildlife, who goes, OK, yep, you're allowed to be hunting here. But we banned that. And I actually got to take you into the RCMP over this. And you're going to see a lot of conflict over that because a, uh, it's already a strong political tension in the sense that we over-incarcerate Indigenous people here in Canada and mm -hmm. lots of people who've managed to avoid the justice system. And I say avoid because, you know, if you are, if the police in your area are focusing on you, it can be hard to uh, sort of escape their notice and to not end up with a criminal record over something petty and trivial, but they're going to end up going, what do you mean I'm now going to get a criminal record and a gun ban uh, just because I own the gun I always owned? The one that, you know, might have been passed down in my family. It's, uh, there's going to be some real tension and some real difficult conversations around what's happening there in the future. Yeah, that's something that we talk a lot about here on this show uh, in the context of the United States and how gun laws are disproportionately used against minorities. Um, it tends to be that if you pass a law, it's going to be used against more likely than not the people who are disproportionately uh, in contact with the criminal justice system. Right. So in the United States, that tends to be uh, young black men in Canada. It's like you said there, it tends to be, uh, I imagine, young indigenous men. Uh, and so for whatever reason, this is not a commonly talked about phenomenon uh, when discussing gun laws in most of the major media here in the United States. And I imagine it's the same way in, in Canada with the CBC and, and other outlets. But I mean, most of the people who are pushing these gun bans would be horrified if you were to get up on the news and say, as a politician, listen, I want to throw more Indigenous, and as you say, largely young Indigenous men in jail. Uh, if you got up as a politician and said that, uh, they would, you know, they'd want to burn down your house, uh, metaphorically speaking, but also possibly literally. Uh, and if the, but that's what they mean when they put in a lot of these bans. That's what the actual effect is going to be. 
uh, especially because what you'll see is dispro- like a disparity in terms of how the police respond. If the police happen to, you know, let's say a farmer, you know, has their house burned down and through some accident and the, the first responders as they're digging through this go, oh, by the way, we found the guns and there's, you know, a couple that were covered by the ban. Uh, some, you know, old white farmer is probably more likely to get caught a break by the police going, oh, you know, sorry, these were actually banned some time ago. Uh, we're just going to keep the gun, but we're not going to prosecute you. Then somebody who's living on the reserve, they're less likely to be cut that break and more likely to end up uh, caught up in the justice system as a result. So, yeah, and I feel like that's especially true with this particular ban. Yeah, because of how vague and complicated it is. I mean, measuring the muzzle what was the muzzle like energy, I guess, of uh, the rape, the rifles capable of at 10,000 joules. Nobody not your average gun owner is not going to have even your advanced gun owner is not going to have any idea what that number means. Well, and um, I personally don't have any idea of what that number means because neither do I. <laughs> it's you know, is this what it's rated for? Or is this the maximum overpressure thing that you could theoretically put through a gun of this model and not have it, you know, burst open? Uh, Are we talking about, you know, is it just if I fire it, you know, in the air or what happens if I reinforce it in some fashion? Is that allowed to get it over the 10,000 joules? Uh, Another issue that's come up is they say any firearm with a bore diameter of 20 millimeters or greater. So what they intended really to do here, what they say that they were trying to do is allow 10 gauges and 12 gauges, but cut it off after that. So an eight gauge is no good. But if if you own a hunting shotgun and it was made in the last however long, it's probably got a removable choke because that's a great feature in a hunting shotgun. Right. You know, you don't need six shotguns with six different chokes. You can have one with a little screw end. But that removable choke is that now expanding the bore? Because if it is, it's probably taking you over 20 millimeters. So they might have accidentally banned 12-gauge shotguns writ large here in Canada, uh, with the unusual exception that combat shotguns, which are often not including the removable choke, uh, might actually be the most legal 12-gauge shotguns or the most uh, sort of reliably legal ones left here in Canada. But... uh, They've made public statements to say, oh, no, 12 gauges are not included. But what Bill Blair says on Twitter is not actually a source of law. He can't fix the law by making comments on Twitter. So it'll ultimately come down to how the courts interpret it. And right now, I don't know. It's a very difficult situation here in terms of how this is actually, you know, there's this wide category of guns that are just maybe included and not certainly and that's that's yeah. a big problem especially because there's language as well where they say any variant of the ar-15 well what is a variant and <laughs> the interpretation they're adopting or seems to be is anything that looks like an ar-15 even if it doesn't actually share any mechanical history with it so you know this is essentially like saying oh listen uh Notwithstanding the fact that you started with a Pinto, you put a body kit on it, and it now looks like a Ferrari, so we're going to treat it like a Ferrari when it's still the Pinto that it started with. And it's, uh... Yeah. Yeah, well, that that's something that uh, is not unique to Canada, I'll say that much. Uh, certainly, you've seen a number of these sorts of um, approaches, I guess uh, would be a way of saying it, uh, here in the United States as well. Massachusetts has a copycat uh, ban on AR-15-like guns, which is not clearly defined in any way. Um, but yeah, so this is—I mean—that's this is the difficulty of trying to regulate. I mean, obviously, trying to regulate most anything is going to be difficult. But uh, I think uh, trying to regulate uh, mechanical devices like firearms that are so versatile uh, and can be changed in any number of different ways is a bit like trying to hold smoke so uh you get these sorts of vague statutes and they give a lot of discretion to law enforcement and the legal system which is i'm sure something that law enforcement argue will argue is good 
but uh, that many civil rights activists will argue is uh, not good. Well, there's a big push essentially to give a lot of the classification decisions over to the RCMP and the police. And the problem that people don't really think about with this is what that means for democracy, because you can't vote out the RCMP if you don't like them or if they're engaging in abuses. You can't be like, I don't like my local cop. I'm not voting for him next election. Uh, and one of the hallmarks of the police state, you know, people you throw the term around sort of casually, but police officers making law is one of the sort of hallmarks of that. So people are like, oh, well, you know, the police should be the ones deciding what is and isn't banned. And I'm going, do you actually know what it is you're suggesting? Because I don't think you've thought the implications on this one through and don't realize exactly how scary that concept is if you start applying it more broadly. You know, what drugs should be banned? Oh, well, we'll let the police decide. Well, that could be a problem for you. You know, what, uh, you know, what activities should be banned? Especially because the police do not have a good history with, again, you know, all the groups that people are sympathetic towards in terms of their past uh, discrimination and present discrimination. You know, it's if you're thinking, hey, I don't like police racism and there is a problem with racism within the police. Giving them more discretion is exactly the wrong approach because they'll be able to shape that uh, to those notions. And in fact, one uh, firearm that is very much on the police's radar as one they would like to ban is the SKS. And that's because it's an inexpensive uh, firearm. It's for a time, at least, it was the cheapest long gun you could get in Canada. And it was, you know, it's perfectly good for hunting if you've got nothing better. You know, it may not be the most accurate gun out there, but if you can get close enough to a deer, you can certainly bring it down with an SKS. But because it's an inexpensive firearm, uh, the police see it misused sometimes. And so they'll say, well, we want this, you know, knocked out. But they're everywhere on reserves. They're just all over the place. And so a ban on the SKS is essentially going to be uh, declaring war with the with some of the local indigenous groups simply because of how many, uh, you know, how many hunters and with charter protected hunting rights uh, that'll end up affecting. And they'll say, oh, well, just buy another gun. But if you bought the SKS because it's 200 bucks because you got no money, just buy another gun. You know, maybe you don't have the money to go buy a $700 gun now. And it'll be uh, yep. interesting to see where that goes. Absolutely. Uh, you know, obviously, I think that police officers uh, on average are uh, upstanding people who want to do their best to protect uh, their community. Uh, but at the same time, making police work easier is not always uh, the best path and the most ideal thing you can do, because it often comes at the cost of civil liberties for the public. Uh, and that's that's what needs to be kept in mind when you're talking about uh, these sorts of things, as you've uh, elaborated on here. But we really appreciate you coming on and, and giving us some insight into uh, Canadian gun culture, as well as this confiscation scheme that's uh, going forward up there. And uh, I've really enjoyed your perspective. I think you're very knowledgeable and uh, I know a little bit more about uh, our neighbors to the north now. So uh, I'm, I'm glad that you took the time to, to join us today. Tell, can you tell people a little bit about where they, they might find more of your writing or, or uh, if they're in Canada and they need uh, legal advice where they can find you? Uh, easiest way to track me down is I'm on YouTube as at Runkle of the Bailey. So if you put in Runkle and that's R-U-N-K-L-E of the Bailey, that'll uh, show up my YouTube channel and you can, there's a link in the about if you want to shoot me an email, if you've got uh, sort of more direct or personal inquiries. Um, I should also note, just because on the policing aspect, I agree uh, 100% that your average police officer is somebody who's trying to do their best and, you know, is a, a good upstanding member of society. But yeah. there's always the outliers and even for the, you know, the good upstanding member of society, there is a tension with your rights. Uh, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms here in Canada is a very young document. It, uh, it's not, it doesn't have the same lengthy history as the U.S. rights documents. And so uh, it was opposed by police forces. They said, this is going to make our job more difficult. And it does. Um, every right that you have 
annoys a cop out there somewhere sometime. So it's, uh, it is important that, you know, we recognize that the average police officer is doing their best. Uh, but as gun owners, the, uh, the things that make their lives easier are not necessarily the things that make our lives easier or that, uh, promote freedom. Uh, they'd be able to catch more criminals if they could kick down your door anytime they felt like it and have a look around. But I don't want to live in that society. And so exactly <laughs> right. Exactly. So, um, Yes, we appreciate your perspective and, and thank you for coming on. We're going to head over to the news uh, update now. So we'll see you guys over there. Thank you for having me. Cheers. All right. I'm here with contributing writer Jake Fogelman. Welcome back to the show. Good, sir. Um, <laughs> this week, you had a pretty good story, an interesting story. Another one of these stories in the constitutional carry realm uh, that shows perhaps some more momentum as we've been talking about. Uh, for several months now, uh, who now is is backing permitless carry uh, in, and in what state? Yeah, so the governor, the current sitting governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, uh, held a big event on Wednesday at a gun store in Smyrna, Georgia, uh, where he basically came out. It was rumored that he was going to do this, and he uh, ended up coming out and saying, yeah, he supports permitless carry, he supports making Georgia the next permitless carry state, and he's going to encourage all the state lawmakers to introduce a bill. I believe there's a bill pre-filed already, um, but we could see multiple versions of a, a constitutional carry bill coming uh, this upcoming legislative session in Georgia. Yeah, the uh, Atlanta Journal-Constitution, I think, had a uh, the scoop on this one early on that he was going to do this, and then, and then now he has this and it's interesting because it's part of his reelection, right? And he's running for governor again. Obviously, he had a big fight with uh, former President Donald Trump uh, during the uh, the previous election, where Donald Trump uh, is essentially tried to. What it was, I think he had the quote was uh, defined uh, just the, the number votes. of votes that he needed to win, and, and Kemp didn't wouldn't do that. Uh, so he's faced a lot of. Uh, from the former president. And now you have uh, the former senator, David Perdue, who lost his runoff largely because uh, of Trump telling people that the voting was rigged. Uh, and so a lot of Republicans didn't show up for that, that race. But now he's running against Kemp as, uh, as sort of uh, part of this Trumpian uh, revenge uh, <laughs> campaign um, where they're, they're trying to knock him off as the incumbent. Uh, but th so it's interesting to see him now uh, dive deeper into the gun rights side of things uh, as part of the, his reelection campaign. That's right, because uh, Purdue actually has already come out and said that he supports bringing constitutional carry to Georgia. Um, so in order to kind of fend off that challenge, as you mentioned, Trump is involved. Trump endorsed David Perdue in this effort mm -hmm. to unseat sitting Governor Brian Kemp. So as soon as Kemp made his statements, Perdue fired off on Twitter. Uh, he said, I'm glad Brian Kemp is answering my call for constitutional carry in Georgia. He said, but real leaders lead from the start. And it's time Georgia had a governor who shows principal leadership when it matters most. So he's basically firing off saying, hey, you're late to the party. I real leaders would have called for this months ago. Uh, so it's interesting to see the election dynamic working at play. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting to see how this has become a significant electoral issue in Republican races now. And this is something we've been talking about for a while, right, is that sure. because of the momentum that constitutional carry or permitless carry, uh, is, you know, constitutional carry is sort of the, the advocates term for it, right, uh, because they believe that the Constitution provides the right to carry a gun and you shouldn't need a permit. Uh, but anyway, the, that's been pushed very hard over the last uh, decade or so, really the last five years uh, in in red states. And now you have almost all of the states that have a Republican trifecta where they control all the branches of state government have implemented this policy now, including Texas, of course, being the, the largest one just last year. And you had at least five uh, states that that did it last year. And now you have, there's a couple states left. There's Ohio, uh, Indiana, South Carolina, Georgia, where, where you have, uh, at Florida, I believe too, where you have triple red control. And I might've forgot one or two, but the, they're going to be under immense pressure. And I think that's what's sh showing up here. Right. 
Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, you're seeing it become a major, like you said, litmus test almost for Republican politicians in these states now that this is the issue for gun rights in these types of states. Uh, we, we covered a story where DeSantis in Florida, where that, that was the first question that was asked of him by gun rights <clears throat> supporters, whether or not he would support such a bill. And he said he would. Uh, you're seeing, as you said, Ohio, I think, passed a version in each of its yep. chambers of the legislature. Uh, I think Nebraska, uh, their governor, their Republican governor, uh, came out and said he would support such a bill. So you're, you're seeing this become sort of the gun rights issue in those it's states. It's over, too, in, into purple states now as well. Pennsylvania, the right. legislature there, which is Republican-controlled, the House and Senate, they passed permitless carry as well. The, now, the Democratic governor, Tom Wolf, he vetoed it, uh, and they don't have a veto-proof majority, so it, it didn't make it into law. But that's an interesting development too. It took him about 10 years. We're actually going to have uh, a story on this coming in, in the, the reload soon where I detail how that happened, what, what moved things after the, the bill had been introduced or the concept was introduced, you know, a decade ago in Pennsylvania. Now it's passed and it looks poised to become an electoral issue there for the governor's race that's coming up as well. So that'll be interesting to watch too. Sure. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if they can make that a, a, a salient wedge issue uh, for a Republican challenge to the governorship. Yeah, certainly. But uh, in other news, we also had the gun sales numbers for 2021 come in. And uh, unsurprisingly, they were huge. They were yeah. the second best on record uh, as we it's another trend we've been following all year right at the reload. Uh, sales were not as good as 2020, but they were better than any other record, year on record. and quite a lot better than 2019 as well. And so you've sort of seen this new level, new normal settle in with sales at 18.5 million is the estimate for 2021 from the National Shooting Sports Foundation, which analyzes the FBI's uh, background check numbers because, you know, there's obviously there's no gun registry in the United States and there's a lot of reasons for that. It's actually illegal under federal law because people fear that a registry would lead to confiscation, obviously. and so. Uh, there's no way to directly track all gun sales and there's no way to get a perfect account for how many guns were sold each each day or each month or each year. So instead, we use the background check numbers because those are required on all new sales of guns because all new sales of guns go through licensed dealers and all licensed dealers have to do an FBI background check uh, for each sale that they make. So you get a close approximation of what the sales numbers are from the FBI's background check data numbers. Now, there's a number of reasons that it's not exact. If you just looked at the raw numbers, you would be wildly overestimating how many sales there are because the FBI's background check system is also used for gun carry permits in the vast majority of states. Although, obviously, as we've been talking about, a lot of states are moving away from a permitting system altogether, but some states like Illinois, for instance, will not only check you when you get your permit, but they will recheck you every single month that you have the permit. And so that sure. leads to hundreds of thousands, and in the end, a total for the country, millions of checks that don't have anything to do with actual gun sales. And that's why we look at the National Shooting Sports Foundation's analysis of these numbers to get a better idea of how many of them were actually for gun sales. But that, that's a long explanation just to give you guys. The, the background of how this all works, but it's all, it's all to say that we had a lot of gun sales in 2021. Sure. Yeah, it was uh, interesting. I think you had in your piece something like a 40% increase from 2019 to 2021. Mm -hmm. So even though 2021 isn't the record year, you still saw a 40% jump from the, you know, the pre-pandemic spikes and the pre-civil uh, unrest spikes. So that's pretty substantial for a, a new normal to be 40% above baseline. Yeah, absolutely. It's down 12% from last year from about, well, we're in 2022 now, but it, so it's down, 2021 was down 12% from 2020. But yeah, as you said, it's up 40% from 2019, which does give you that indication of this new level of demand being sustained. It, it wasn't just a, a one-year spike and then back down to levels that it had been at before. Uh, in, in fact, it's something that's going to level off a lot higher than the previous uh, record, which is sort of indicative of how things have gone 
throughout the years in the gun industry. You'll get a big spike. It'll come back down, but the new normal will be higher than the previous normal. And so you're seeing that again here. The interesting thing to me, and there's going to be a, a reload members piece on this, but December and the fourth quarter of 2021 were actually still lower than 2020, which is pretty fascinating. There, what The industry went into a little bit more of a slump than maybe I would have expected them to. Because sure. you saw like Black Friday's numbers, for instance, were up over 2020, but December's were down. And I think there's a lot of interesting takeaways from that because there was a point where it seemed like perhaps 2021 would catch back up to 2020 in the second half of the year because a lot of the things that drove the huge sales numbers in 2020 came in the early part of 2020. In uh, March, obviously, with the the, pan the onset of the pandemic and all the chaos that surrounded that. And then in June, uh, you had the rioting that occurred across the country and the, the racial unrest uh, from George Floyd's killing uh, by a police officer in Minneapolis. Those things led to huge spikes in June. And so that also created a, a lot of shortages of guns and ammunition throughout the country. and. The thought was that that depressed demand a bit. And you did see that 2021 actually had higher sales through January and February and then through uh, April. But then it leveled off again. And, and I, I had actually expected that perhaps 2021 might have higher sales in December and the fourth quarter than 2020 did for, for those same factors. But it turned out not to be the case. And I think that's. That's fairly interesting. Yeah, it is a. It's not quite what you'd expect, uh, especially uh, like you said. I think the industry typically expects in those later months in the winter too to have elevated sales for things like hunting or holiday shopping. Um, so yeah, that's definitely an interesting development to see it dip off like that. Yeah, speaking of the industry, we had uh, Mark Oliva, who's a spokesperson for NSSF, the National Shooting Sports Foundation, which is the industry's trade group. They're the ones who put on you know Shot Show in Las Vegas every year, which which we'll be at, by the way. So stay tuned for, for uh, our reporting from Las Vegas. But Mark said, the fact that over 18.5 million Americans chose lawfully to purchase a firearm in 2021 is indicative of the values Americans hold of the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms. So, uh, you know, he, he's saying that this shows how much value people put into gun rights. And then later on, he also said manufacturers announced significant investments in the expansion and relocation signaling the anticipation for continued growth. So I think the industry itself has put a lot of investment into sustaining supply to meet the new demand. Um, and, uh, and that'll be interesting to see how that plays out because a lot of times in the past during these surges, you've had a big surge in uh, supply on the supply side afterwards and perhaps wasn't timed per well for some of these companies. You saw a lot of companies during the 2013 uh, spike after the Sandy Hook shooting when there was a lot of talk of implementing new gun controls and perhaps banning, uh, you know, the sale of AR-15s. A lot of companies got into making AR-15s because the demand was sure. just through the roof at the time. And then when demand came back down, as it was clear that that wasn't going to happen, that there wasn't going to be a ban on AR-15s, a number of those companies went out of business. So um, we'll see how well the industry uh, sticks the landing here, I guess, uh, going forward. Yeah, uh, especially uh, another trend that we'll probably have some pieces on in the future. You're seeing, as you said, manufacturers tooling up to meet uh, production, but they're also moving to states where it's just a friendlier business climate for them to do that. Um, mm. So you could see a, a major boost as these uh, legacy manufacturers continue to move to southern states. If they'll grow and then they'll continue to produce more firearms and we'll see what the industry does. Yeah. But anyway, that's it for this week. Uh, if you enjoy the reload, if you enjoy what we're doing here, make sure that you head over to the reload.com and check out our memberships today or sign up for our free newsletter if you just want to see what we're all about. And perhaps it's the first time you're listening to the 
the podcast. But if you want to support what we're doing, if you want to ensure that we can continue bringing you sober, serious firearms reporting and analysis, then you should consider buying a membership, which will also give you a number of perks, including access to dozens of exclusive reports and analysis pieces that you can't get anywhere else, uh, as well as an extra newsletter on Sundays. You'll get the members newsletter. And you'll also get access to this podcast a day early and the opportunity to join us for a members segment of the podcast. If you are already a member and want to come on the show, just reply to your Sunday newsletter uh, and let us know. And we'd love to have you on. So that's it for now. We'll talk to you guys again next week.